Welcome to Healthonomics, a podcast about health, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the economics department. Today, my guest is Dr. Alexander James. Alexander is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Alaska, Anchorage. Alexander, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to have you here because you are actually the first agriculture economist that I'm having on the show. Um, Up until now, it's just been health economists, but I'm trying to branch out a little bit um, because I think that there is definitely uh, an intersection and a relationship between agriculture and regional development and personal health and health economics. And I'm maybe thinking of one of my dissertation chapters might be an intersection of the two. So I'm happy to have you here. And today we are talking about your paper titled Geography, Geology, and Regional Economic Development. This was co-authored with Kevin Berry, Brock Smith, and Brett Watson. But before we get started, tell me about your background in economics. So I grew up in, uh, in Northern California, uh, just a few hours away from Reno, actually, and um, it's heavy, you know, agriculture land, um, lots of nuts and fruit, and my hometown is really surrounded by agriculture. Uh, and so I grew up with an appreciation for natural resources and the role they play in kind of developing, you know, regional economies um, and determining where people live. So that kind of was my initial interest, created my initial interest in natural resources. I went to grad school at, at the, the University of Wyoming and uh, where I studied environmental and resource econ. And then I uh, did a postdoc at the Oxford Center for the Analysis of Resource-Rich Economies. And seven years ago, took a job up in um, Alaska at the University of Alaska Anchorage. And I've kind of, I planned on being there a couple of years, but Alaska has just been too much fun. And part of the appeal there was originally, you know, to really live in a resource-rich economy and 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 both be able to affect policy, but also um, to get a better sense of of what are the challenges facing these types of economies. And you know, it's been a wild ride, but a lot of fun. I can see how Alaska uh, fits your needs there. Definitely resource-rich. I'm jealous. So this paper that we're talking about today, what? is your primary research question. What are you guys looking at? And what are the highlighted findings of the paper before we dive into the details and the methods and the data? What are you looking at in this paper? This question of how natural resources affect economic development has, you know, it's it's been well studied. Loads and loads of papers have been written on, on natural resources development. If you look on Google Scholar, you read a, a bunch of articles that reference something called the curse of natural resources. And that's really what kind of piqued my interest in this area. This idea that, you know, you, you pick up a, a Econ 101 textbook and it says there's three forms of capital, right? Physical capital, human capital, natural capital, natural resources. And yet economies that are most dependent on natural resources, when you look around the world, they're oftentimes the poorest. They experience the slowest uh, rate of economic growth. They suffer from the weakest forms of, of, of political institutions. They um, are more likely to be, you know, under autocratic rule, so on and so forth. Uh, and so that's kind of perplexing and surprising. And so in a broad sense, that's what made me start thinking about resources and economic development. Now within the United States, 
um, there are a lot of the patterns that we've seen when you look at cross-country data, we see that they exist within the United States as well. Um, and so what myself and co-authors set out to do was identify the long-run effect of natural resources on regional economic development within the United States. And so other people have attempted to do that. I think we kind of, one of our main contributions to this paper is doing an event study analysis, which we can talk in detail about later, but really kind of mapping out the short, medium, and long-run effects of these uh, mineral and oil discoveries. What we also do is we point out that there are important heterogeneities that exist. So people have really focused on estimating average effects of resource discoveries, um, so-called average treatment effects. And so in this paper, we point out that the effect of discovering oil over here is going to be different than the effect of discovering in some other place based off of the geographic and natural amenity characteristics of these places. Uh, and so an analogy that we make in the paper is getting an education is more important for people that are not, um, you know, inherently um, kind of naturally and intelligently gifted. Um, if you're really smart, maybe if an education is not so important, but if you're not, you know, naturally gifted, a degree is much more important. In the context of regional development, you got to have something. There's, there's got to be a reason for people to move to your area. And so if you don't have a natural resource, but you have a lot of, of sunshine and, um, and you're near the coast, uh, people will still come to you. Um, but if you don't have sunshine, if you're not near a coast, if you don't have, you know, flat uh, land and fertile soil, what's going to draw people to the area? Well, a natural res resource can fill that void then. I vividly remember learning about the curse of natural resources in my Econ 303 class in undergrad. And I remember being so fascinated by it because I was a little undergrad econ. I had no idea what was going on in economics. And then I we talked about this idea that the most resource-rich countries in the world have some of the worst outcomes in terms of economic metrics. And it's just such a fascinating idea. So I'm excited to talk about that today. Um, yeah. You have a quote at, you mentioned a quote at the beginning of the introduction, of the paper, and it's so good. And I'm going to say it now. It says, quote, new roads, agriculture, employment, education. These are just a few of the things we can offer you. And I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that if we do find oil here, and I think there's a very good chance that we will, this community of yours will not only survive, it will flourish close quote. And that's from the movie, There Will Be Blood. And I read it and I was like, wow, this is a great introduction. I've never read an academic <laughs> introduction with a quote from yeah. a movie, but it's, it was enthralling. It really got my attention. And so this quote yeah. really, really highlights the, uh, the driving forces of how natural resources can drive economic development. So my question for you is, if we know natural resources drive economic development, why should we be studying the dynamics of this in regional and economic development? Why, why should this be a focus of ours in research? Well, I guess, so part of the answer is that, that we don't know, right? We don't know the relationship between natural resources and economic development. There's very good estimates of the short run effects of resources, of resource discoveries or resource extraction. You know, they're, they're overwhelmingly positive. Wages increase, poverty rates fall, unemployment falls. I'm thinking within the context of the United States, there's very little evidence that there's Dutch disease effects within the U.S. where, 
you know, a booming natural resource sector um, shrinks non-traded um, or sorry, traded manufactured sectors. Now what's there's less known about is the long run effects, right? And so understanding, understanding those dynamics is, is, you know, clearly important from, you know, a development standpoint, if we want to understand why places develop and, 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 and um, why people live where they do. But then examining the heterogeneous effects is important, both from the perspective of, of practitioners. If, if we just focus on, on average treatment effects and you say, okay, here's the effect of resource of extracting natural resources. And you present that to policymakers in a, in a different part of the country. Well, that might not be the effect of extracting natural resources in that area, right? And so the questions about, our, our paper really raises questions about external validity. So by heterogeneous effects, you're talking about localized effects. If there's an oil discovery in a small town in Montana, how is that going to affect it compared to an oil discovery in, let's say, crazy downtown New York City? That's never going to happen. But is that the kind of heterogeneous effects that you're looking at? So you, you mentioned in the paper that you're examining large and localized productivity shocks in the form of major oil and mineral discoveries. So what does this mean? And for any non-academic listeners, what does the phrase shock to productivity mean? And my statistics, as a side note, in my lecture the other day, I lecture statistics, I said um, shock to, I said shock to the data, that the data has been shocked. And the like I immediately lost everyone's attention at that very second. Nobody had any idea what I was talking about. And I realized economists love to use the word shock, but what does shock mean to everybody else? That's a good question. And to me, I guess a shock in the context of resource, natural resources and resource rich economies, a shock is kind of deviation, a significant deviation from trend. It could be expected or unexpected. Um, but these these things do tend to be uh, at least in the long run not necessarily anticipated, um, which makes analyzing them especially interesting. Now, when we think about a shock to productivity, the way I use the word is um, in the context of really, I guess, wages. That I mentioned this a minute ago. That when there's when you're extracting a natural resource, that labor is is very productive in the sense that they're producing a lot of value per hour, say, and so they they get paid very well for their work because they're they're so productive. But resource booms don't just affect the natural resource sector. Resource sectors pull labor in from other sectors, right? And so by decreasing the, the, the pool of labor that's available for these other sectors, the remaining labor in those sectors becomes more productive. The result is that wages go up across the board, which is what we tend to see, at least in the short run. So everybody gets a piece of the pie is what you're saying is if there's an oil discovery, not only are the workers uh, directly working on that discovery going to benefit, but everybody else in the surrounding area, maybe the nearby grocery stores, hotels. Is that kind of what you're implying here? Yeah, I guess the one caveat I put there is that is that not everybody. Mm, okay. Uh, but so, so the benefits of a resource boom are definitely they're unevenly distributed across people in space. And so there, there are huge, huge winners and there, there are losers too, right? There are people who, who had a job before the energy boom occurred and, and maybe their wages didn't go up by very much. They didn't own land that they could lease out to oil companies. There are also negative externalities associated with resource booms, you know, crime, pollution, congestion, traffic. And so there, there are certainly losers as well. Um, but my broad point is just that um, we see in the short run, broad 
economic improvements. So a lot of the people that move to, to boomtowns actually are not working in the energy sector, right? It's the energy sector is paying high wages. The workers are then going out and buying services. That's haircuts, education, medical services. And so you need additional labor to, to fill all of these um, demands. Right. It's everything else that gets provided at the same time. Everybody needs a haircut and an education. Like you said, people are, are purchasing other services outside of the energy boom. Uh, another dimension that you evaluate is how resource shocks can have an effect in geographically isolated areas. So how do you define a geographically isolated area in the paper? And why are these important areas that we should be investigating and talking about? What we do is, is so we're looking at, we're estimating the long run effect of oil and mineral discoveries. And we're looking at two sources of um, heterogeneity in the effects. So one is in, in um, environmental amenity value and the other is geographic isolation, as you mentioned. What we do is we say, okay, a place is geographically isolated if it's, if it's very costly to move from that location to the nearest quote unquote market. And we define the, a market in a few different ways in the paper. Now, when we first wrote the paper, the plan was, let's just say that the linear distance between a discovery and the nearest market, that that distance is, you know, a, a proxy for the cost of traveling from point A to point B. And my co-authors uh, that are very clever and, and, um, and technically savvy said, hey, we can do better <laughs> than that. Because the problem with, with saying that that travel costs or geographic isolation is just, you know, straight line distance between two points is that it ignores geography between those two, those points. And so right. given the paper is that Denver is about the same linear distance from the port of San Francisco as it is from the port of Houston. But if you, if you were to travel from Denver to Houston, it's a fairly flat path. Ah, I see. In other words, it's a fairly inexpensive path. But if you go Denver to the Port of San Francisco, you've got to go through the Rocky Mountains, the Salt Flats in Nevada, and then through the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and then down into the Sacramento Valley. And so it's it's a very expensive route to take. Uh, and so we build these these estimates of travel cost or, or geographic isolation um, that, that takes into account both, both geography, so um, the ruggedness of a terrain, uh, and then also water water coverage with the idea that it's very expensive to build through the mountains and it's really expensive to build over bodies of water. Uh, if you think about building a railroad across a, over a, a river, that's, that's very expensive. Right. So I can see how linear distance itself does not encompass all of the factors of transportation costs. You have to include the ruggedness, the elevation gain, and the Sierra Nevadas, which I've driven through many, many, many times, and it can be Highly unpredictable, especially if, if snow is on the road. Yeah, so I can see. So these are really important for us to look at because if these geographically isolated towns, if it costs a lot for them to export their whatever they're extracting or their discoveries, that can have some effect on the economic output. So I can see why those are important. So in, in, in particular, regarding the heterogeneous effects, the argument we make is that you know a place that's, that's very geographically isolated especially one that is, say, in rugged terrain, nobody is going to organically move, or very few people will organically just decide to move to the middle of nowhere, right? Right. It's, it's, it's expensive to live by yourself in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, it's dangerous. 
you can't find, um, you know, there's not a lot of social interactions. There's lots of reasons people don't just pick up and move and, and live by themselves. But if the price is right, you can get somebody to move, right? So if there's a chance that you're going to find uh, a big gold deposit, well, then you can get people to move out into the West in search of, of treasure. Um, and so that's kind of the point that we make in the paper that these places that are very geographically isolated, that are very rugged and inhospitable, they were not going to develop unless there was a lure drawing people to the area. And that's, that's the role of natural resources. And then fast forward to thinking about the long-run effects, long-run development effects and population effects of these discoveries in rugged areas. If 50 years later, there's a, a contingency of people that say, hey, you know, I'd like to live in the mountains outside Denver. I want to live near, I want to put in a ski resort. I want to go skiing or I want to have a cabin in the mountains. Where do they go? Well, you don't build your own road and your own bridges up into the mountains. You use the roads and bridges that were there. And why were they there? They were there because people were extracting natural resources. And so it's not a coincidence that when you look around at the, the ski resorts in the United States and in the Rockies and the Sierra Nevada mountains, they tend to overwhelmingly be previous sites of mineral extraction. Right. So that's true in, in places like Tahoe, Snowbird and Alta in Utah, even uh, Telluride in Colorado is named after the Telluride ores that were extracted there, ah. silver and gold. And so there that I think that really paints a nice picture of our story that, you know, within if you if you restrict the sample of areas within the United States to just these super rugged, isolated places. Now, what's the role of discovering a natural resource? Well, it's massive because that's going to be the site of future economic development because uh, the, the extraction of the minerals paid for the, the, the cost of transportation infrastructure that's necessary for people to live there. Right. And so what you're saying is that these tiny little towns out in the middle of nowhere with rugged terrain probably would have never developed if there wasn't for this big discovery that covered everybody's startup costs. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to add on to a point you made about these geographically isolated areas. No one just wants to pick up and move to live in the middle of nowhere where there's no resources. And um, we find this a lot in health economics literature as well. Uh, health outcomes in rural isolated areas tend to be worse off compared to dense urban areas. And that's due to a multitude of reasons. One of, which, one of which is a lack of resources. For example, in some areas in Nevada, there are simply no gynecologists to deliver babies. So women have to drive five to six hours to the nearest hospital to get a prenatal checkup and deliver their child and things of that nature. So these isolated areas, they lack resources. But like you were saying, if the lure is big enough, if there's a big enough incentive that's, you know, gold is going to bring people in. And that's why we have all of these ghost towns in Nevada that are actually pretty fun to explore. So you mentioned in the paper that major oil fields tend to have persistent effects in creating significant labor demand and that this persistent effect is um, greater compared to the effect that mineral deposits have in creating labor demand. And I want to hear more about this because you talk about how this persistence of effects creates a quote unquote path of dependence. And I think we've, we've kind of started touching on this, but what is this idea and why do major oil fields have a greater effect on labor compared to mineral deposits? 
Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, and so let me start by kind of talking a little bit about path dependence. So path dependence is a the idea that where people live today is a function of just where they lived yesterday. Alternatively, you know, a different theory is that, well, where people live is a function of modern day contemporary features of the place. And so hey, people live in Southern California because it's warm and sunny. Path dependence says people live there because that's where people lived yesterday. And you can see how these two ideas kind of can, can feed on each other. If people originally moved to Southern California because it's sunny and, and warm, and then there could also be path dependence on top of that. Once, once a city starts to develop, it attracts more and more people through agglomeration effects. So the agglomeration effects could manifest in a variety of different ways, reduce labor, transportation costs, uh, reduce cost of transporting goods, access to bigger, deeper, wider labor pools for firms. In the context of consumers, agglomeration effects could be um, some of the stuff I mentioned earlier about it's very expensive to live by yourself. It's very it's, it's a lot less expensive if you live in a big area. Think about the, the, the cost of if I was the only person living in Alaska, think about how expensive it would be for me to fly in and out of Alaska, right? I'd have to, not only would I be the only person on the airplane, but I'd have to build an airport first. <laughs> you Sorry. would need a lot of resources to get out of there. <laughs> That's, I would have to really find a lot of gold to make it worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> but agglomeration plays a, a key role in, in, in path dependence that once you can attract a certain, you know, a sufficient size uh, population that can just feed on itself and can continue to grow. And the bigger you get, the cheaper it is, the more appealing it is to live there. So with that in mind, there's two possible explanations for why we find more persistent effects for oil than we do for, for minerals. One is that oil deposits are an order of magnitude larger in value than mineral deposits. And so it's a bigger boom, so to speak. So that bigger boom creates a bigger labor demand shock. That means wages increase by more, that attracts more people. So you get a bigger population uh, concentrated over oil fields than you do say around a typical silver mine. That's that's one possible explanation for our results. Actually, and I think that's probably part of the story. I think what is more likely driving the, the majority of our persistent effects for for oil though is is much less interesting. <laughs> and that is just that <laughs> that counties that discovered oil in the late 1800s and early 1900s are still producing oil today. Mm, right? Okay. And so, it, so we're not with, with the oil results. It's hard to say that we're actually identifying kind of the truly posterior effect of oil. So you, right. you got so pre-discovery, discovery, extraction, exhaustion of the resource, and then let time go by and evaluate what does that place look like. We can do that for minerals. It's difficult to do that with oil because we haven't exhausted the oil fields yet. Right, right. They're still um, now, extracting it. That's right. So now with minerals, though, that was part of the, the motivation for, for examining um, the effects of, of, uh, of mineral discoveries in our paper, because the average mine lasts like 40 years. And then mines were discovered in our data set. They were largely discovered in the 1800s and early 1900s. And so there we can estimate the, the truly posterior. So a place goes from not having minerals to discovery, extraction, exhaustion, and then they are allowed to grow. And what do these places look like? And on average, we find that they don't look any different 
than their counterpart that didn't discover a mineral, which is kind of surprising to me that, that here, and we're not talking about your average mine. These are world-class uh, mineral deposits, according to the USGS. So these, these are uh, big mineral discoveries. And so on average, the long-run effect of discovering silver or gold is, is nilch. Um, but again, we look at heterogeneous effects and what do we find? We find that there, under one scenario, we find long-run persistent effects of mineral discoveries. And that is in these very rugged, geographically isolated places places like Telluride, where people were not going to organically naturally move there unless there was this lure of wealth that helped to finance the transportation infrastructure. Right. There needs to be a big enough lure. I think that's a big, that's a big takeaway. So what data do you use to answer your research questions? A ton, we use a ton of data. Uh, <laughs> I like that answer. A lot. So our outcome variable, all of our estimates are for uh, population. Uh, and the reason that we do that, these discoveries were made in the 1800s and we're using county level data. In order to examine pretrends, our data has to go back to the late 1700s, early 1800s. And so that data just doesn't, doesn't exist at the county level outside of population. So we're able to compute population density by county for, you know, two centuries or something. Um, and that data comes from Feng and Jawitz, um, 2018-ish, um, where they estimate population density at the one kilometer uh, cell level for the entire United States. And that's convenient for us because if you go back to the 1800s, new land was acquired. The borders of counties changed over time. And so if you actually, if you just said, okay, you know, use census level county data for population, that's difficult because a county in 1820 is not the same county as it was in 1920, possibly. Right, um, right. So using their data, we can overlay these one kilometer cell uh, population estimates over a contemporary map of U.S. counties. And then we have an estimate of population, you know, over two centuries with, with fixed borders. Now, we're required to only look at population density. That's just, you know, due to data limitations. But that's actually a really convenient outcome to analyze. Uh, and so if I was, if I could only look at one outcome variable, when I'm thinking it, uh, for this project, thinking about the, the regional development effects of, of resource discoveries, if I could only look at one outcome variable, it would be population density. You, you might say, oh, that's surprising because, you know, I would think you would want to look at, say, average income or something. I was about to say income. Yeah. Why yeah. population density? So it's a really, I think, an underappreciated feature of, of regional economics. This idea that that people can move, that, that changes mm. how we interpret income, right? So if, you know, I'm, I'm here in California right now, wages in California are relatively low and housing prices are through the roof. Right. It's also 70 degrees every day here in Davis. If So people get paid in a variety of ways. You get paid through a paycheck, but you also get paid through marketed and non-marketed amenities that are, that are present. And so... You know, if um, the air quality is degraded in a particular location, that's going to make people less willing to live there. How do you get people to live there? Well, you pay them more. And so in that sense, 
finding that a place has a high level of income might mean that it's actually a crappy place to live. Right. Being compensated that, for it. In that sense, if you find that that when a resource is extracted, that that causes income to go up in the long run, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that the people that are better off or does it just mean that say environmental quality has been degraded and you have to pay people more in order to get them to live there? So if you wanna know in the long run, how does it, the discovery of a resource change the um, kind of the, the overall quality of a place? Population would be the outcome that you'd wanna look at, right? Um, and so the fact that we're finding these positive long-run population effects makes me think, yeah, these places, the long-run effect of resources is that, um, is that these places are, are more desirable to live in. I, I love that explanation you gave because reading, you know, economic literature, it's, we're always focused on average income, household income, and population density is kind of put off to the, to the back burner <laughs> as yeah. something that we should look at. So thanks for that explanation. I, I appreciate that. So what methods do you use to answer your research questions in this paper? Yeah, so we use an, an, an event study design. So um, we're, we're at, we estimate the effect of discovering a resource, either oil or minerals, in decade T relative to the effect of discovering, of being a county that, that discovers oil 10 years from now or one decade from now. And we estimate that effect for 50 years before discovery and 50 years after discovery. So the idea there is that what's the effect of being a county that does discover oil at some point in the future, we should find that there's no effect, right? Because if 50 years before you discover or 40 years, or 30, 30 years, or 20 years before you, you actually do make a discovery, if we see that these places are evolving in terms of population density, the same as their, their control group or, or counterpart that never does eventually discover oil, and then at the time that there's discovery, we see divergence, well, that's good evidence that, that it's actually the discovery of the resource that's causing that, that effect. Um, and so it's, it's a simple event set design. We supplement those baseline event studies with some cross-sectional work, but that's basically all we do. So for the grad students listening, how does an event study analysis differ from a difference and difference kind of setup, for example? Because in your setup, it sounds like you have a point of intervention. It sounds like you have control and treatment groups. To me, as an average grad student, it sounds like a different diff setup. So how does it differ or is it the same or why did you prefer an event study analysis over a diff and diff? I mean, it, it is really a diff and diff. The difference is just that we're estimating treatment effects. We're estimating the effect of discovery for multiple periods, pre-treatment and post-treatment. And the whole point of that is, is again, just to identify whether or not there's pre-trends. And we're the, actually the first people to estimate pre-trends um, in the effect of discovery within the United States. And so the concern, for example, if you just say, suppose that we just said, what's the effect of being a county that discovered oil 50 years ago, 40, 30, 20, 10, zero years ago. And, and we find that that relationship is, is um, that the effect of discovery is increasing over time. The concern there is that those counties that did discover at say time period zero, were on a different trend. They were already growing more quickly than those counties that didn't discover oil. So by estimating 50 years of, of pre-event data and showing that, no, there was not this trend, 
in my mind, that's the real power of doing an event study like that, that, that you can map out the pre-existing uh, differences and trend between treatments and controls. Are you referring to the parallel trends assumption? Yeah, that's right. So I was just writing about the parallel trends assumption this morning for a presentation I'm making next week and like trying to figure out how to explain it at a very simple level to an audience. And for the grad students listening, the parallel trends assumption is a core assumption of a diff and diff setup. And it's basically the idea that before the intervention or without any intervention, like in the case of an oil discovery, that comparing two counties one without the intervention and one with the intervention, they had the same trends in growth and population density, for example, regardless of the oil discovery. So another way to think about it in the, in the context of what we've done is, I think a very legitimate concern in this line of research is, did the discovery of the resource cause, you know, in this case, population to grow? Or, you know, if you think about income or poverty or whatever, or did the economic change that you're observing cause the discovery? I could argue that, well, maybe, you know, the timing of discovery is endogenous to regional economic development. After all, it, re it requires people to live in the area for there to be a discovery made. And so by showing that there's no pre-trend for 50 years before discovery, that helps kind of address that concern that that we're not finding that these these places that that ultimately are eventually treated we're not finding that they're that they're developing more rapidly than the control group that never does ultimately go on to make it right 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 i see what you're saying so what results do you find or what long run results do you find for towns that do have an oil discovery i know we've kind of talked about there's a there's a boom in labor demand there's a boom in population density. What other results have we not talked about yet that you find for the long run economic impacts on these oil discovering towns? So we've talked about in a, in a very vague sense, the effects, but it's worth mentioning that we're not talking about minor effects here. These, these are economically very meaningful, qualitatively significant effects. And so for oil, the average effect uh, of discovering a major oil field that that's a, a oil field in excess of 100 million barrels, uh, 50 years after discovery, the average effect is about a 50% or 60% increase in population density. Oh wow! So it, it's very significant. Now, something that we do to to help address the reverse causality concern that that development led to discovery is we estimate effects for above and below median oil field sizes. So the idea there is that if even to the extent that there is reverse causality, that population growth leads to discovery, you know, at the moment that you make a discovery, whether it's above or below median size is left to chance. And so we estimate effects for, for, for those extra super large fields relative to the smaller fields. And we get results consistent with the idea, again, that discovery is causing the population growth. For larger fields, we find uh, significantly it's something like 150% increase in population density is the 50 year wow. of, of discovering a, a very large field. And then if you look at the effect of discovering a very large field in a uh, low amenity place or, or geographically isolated place that was not going to grow in the absence of, of an oil discovery, there the effect is somewhere around 350%. Discovery matters, especially in places that we're not going to otherwise grow. 
So this is contributing again to the picture you're trying to paint where these tiny little, you know, nothing towns in the middle of nowhere would have been nothing if it weren't for this discovery. So that's why you see these huge, you know, 150%, 350% effects 50 years down the line. And I was just about to talk or bring up the idea of two-way reverse causality, Um, because I could totally see, you know, let's say an economically robust town prior to making any discovery would have more resources, potentially more capital, more people to invest in digging and extracting for minerals um, compared to a low-income town. So I'm glad to hear that you've controlled for that. This is something that I'm going to lecture about today in my statistics class about two-way causality. I don't know how they're going to like it, so we'll see how it goes. Um, So what are the big picture ideas of this paper and what are some further research questions that are now open for investigation? Like, What should we look at now? Knowing what we know from your work, what should we look at now and what are the big takeaways? So I think there's a few takeaways. One is, yeah, there's very good evidence that places that discovered oil, especially oil in the United States, that a big reason that so many people live in those areas is because oil is there. It's not a coincidence. So so that is fairly well documented in our paper. The other takeaway is that, yes, there's heterogeneous effects based off of environmental amenity and geographic isolation. And there's concerns about external validity of average treatment effects that I discussed earlier on. But I think the the bigger picture that I hope people walk away with from this is that just the the broad idea that heterogeneous effects matter, right? So we've looked at just one source of heterogeneity, environmental amenity and geographic isolation. But that is arguably, you know, maybe the the least important and least interesting possible (laughs) source of heterogeneity. We did that largely, I mean, we had a theory, we thought it made intuitive sense. And it was very, it was an interesting paper to write, but from a policy perspective, like what does a policymaker do with that information? Like, it's good to know, like, Hey, you know, not to dog on North Dakota, but like you guys should probably <laughs> be extracting, you should be extracting oil because you don't have a whole lot else to bring people up there with Southern California. And I'm biased. I'm from California. Maybe you shouldn't sacrifice environmental amenity in search for oil. If, if your target is long run population growth, Hey, just leave the oil in the ground. People are going to come anyway. Um, right. And so that, that's one, one conclusion. But when you think about from a policy perspective, I hope that policymakers in areas that are resource rich or that go through a discovery, I'm thinking about here, particularly counties that went through the fracking boom in the 2000s and that might be on their way to another fracking boom. I hope they're thinking about how to turn that shock in, into long run development. And so there, I'm thinking heterogeneous effects. So there is going to be a, a menu of different outcomes that come from, we're thinking about long-run effects of the, the 2000s trail boom and, and extraction that's occurring today. Some places are going to develop and some places are not. And I think there's very little that economists know about why it is or, or how to harness that short-run shock and, and turn it into progress. I'm thinking like tax policy. To what extent or is the extraction of the resource, to what extent are those rents being collected by a governing body and distributed to the people that live in that area? Um, so rent leakage is a really big problem for resource-rich economies. If the resource is just taken out of the ground and it's not taxed, and if the people that are working there are not residents, how exactly does the local area benefit in the long run from the extraction? Environmental regulations is another concern. Thinking about you know future research, if I was, say, a grad student thinking about 
what I should be studying if I'm interested in, in resource-rich economies, I'd be thinking heterogeneous effects and, and optimal management of natural resources. I think the long run picture is a really important thing to investigate and understand. Like you said, how can you harness this short run boom and you know extend it and have long run benefits from it? I think that's that's one of my favorite things to look at in economics is how can you, you know, extend the long run positive impacts of something. For example, in health policies, what are the long run impacts of giving everybody health insurance today? How are right. we going to make this a positive effect 50 years from now when everyone's retiring? All right. Well, today has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for talking with me. And I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is Healthonomics. For more, go to healthonomics.co, where you can comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.